welcome to this edition of the Thoracic Surgery Resident Association's podcast. The opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for teaching purposes only and should not be applied directly to patient care. Hello, my name is Dr. Luthia Madariaga, and I'm one of the surgical residents at Massachusetts General Hospital. I'm here today with Dr. Christopher Morse, who's a thoracic surgeon at Mass General Hospital, and we're planning to talk about parasophageal hernias. First, we're going to start with a case. We have a case of a 70-year-old female who presents to your clinic with chronic anemia and mild dysphagia. She comes with an upper GI study that showed a large hiatal hernia with linear erosions and no signs of ischemia. How would you approach this patient? Well, Luthia, thanks for the invitation to speak to you about parasophageal hernias. I think these are some of the most complex of the foregut operations, you know, as you look at Nissen's or Heller's. And I would say some, in some instances, a good parasophageal hernia repair is somewhat more difficult than even an esophagectomy to perform and to get a good functional result. Uh, we see a lot of these patients, not everyone that you see needs an operation, but we look for patients that are actually symptomatic. So this is a 70-year-old female. She's got some mild dysphagia. How long has she had that dysphagia for? Seems like she's had it for a couple of months. Okay. And she's been anemic for a number of, of years? Yes. Yeah. And, and I would assume she has the standard other medical problems, some hypertension, some hyperlipidemia. Any previous abdominal surgery? Not that we know of. Is she obese at all? It seems like she's relatively fit. Yeah. So it sounds to me like she's got a symptomatic parasophageal hernia. And so the way I would approach this patient is I think that, first and foremost, she probably needs uh, upper GI endoscopy to look for any other evidence of esophageal pathology, including Barron's esophagus, esophageal cancer, however unlikely that may be. And she's had a good, looks like a good Barron swallow that you're showing me, which shows a large, which to my eye looks like a large type 3 parasophageal hernia. Um, and, I, and I think this patient certainly would be a candidate for repair, particularly with her symptoms. Do you find any utility in getting a CT scan or manometry? So I, I don't see much utility to a CT scan. I guess there are certain instances where I'm worried about other either intra-abdominal or intrathoracic pathology that might be better clarified with a CT scan. Manometry is always nice to have, especially in a patient who has dysphagia. The difficulty with manometry in a patient who has a parasophageal hernia is that it's not always possible to pass the, 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 the catheter past a large hernia. There's often some tortuosity and difficulty in getting an accurate reading of of the esophagus with manometry. So it's certainly not mandatory, and I operate on an awful lot of patients without esophageal manometry um, with a large parasophageal hernia. Now we briefly went over how this patient was symptomatic. What happens if the patient came in with an incidental finding? Right, and I think that that speaks to um, a very accurate history and physical, and, and or I should say history more so than anything. And I, w I, I would comment that um, Years prior, I think we had a much uh, lower threshold to operate on patients with a large parasophageal hernia for fear that they would suffer some acute gastric volvulus or torsion that could lead to a very uh, difficult emergent operation with a very high mortality. I think we found you know, some work done at this hospital by David Ratner in general surgery. We found that that incidence of an acute 
uh, intrathoracic or intraabdominal catastrophe from a parasophageal hernia is actually quite rare. So in those that are actually completely asymptomatic, I, I tend to follow them expectantly with that uh, with the caveat being that if you have any change in your symptoms, I want to hear about it. If you start having some postprandial discomfort, if you have some mild dysphagia, all those things I, I need to hear about a change in your clinical picture and have a low threshold to call me. Sometimes, you know, as you begin to ask questions, they may think they're asymptomatic, but you find out that they've adjusted their eating over the last six or eight months or even year. They say, oh, geez, I, I feel fine, but I eat very small meals. I regurgitate some undigested food, you know, once a week. And, and so with some, some attention to the history, you might be able to find some subtle findings that, that, are, that are actually symptoms of their large hernia. The symptoms I look for and will operate on, dysphagia, Postprandial pain is one that I find an alarming symptom. Some may, some may <clears throat> note that that is sort of a symptom of impending catastrophe. I think anemia, especially if you see Cameron ulcerations on an upper GI endoscopy. Um, sort of intractable recalcitrant gastroesophageal reflux symptoms is an indication. Shortness of breath is one that I don't find particularly revealing for a parasophageal hernia repair. I think you'll be unsatisfied if someone shows up with a large hernia, some shortness of breath. It's often a multifactorial problem, and fixing the hernia may take away one component, but usually does not completely resolve their breathing difficulties. It's not common, although it is possible to see, it's not common to see the hernia take up a large volume of space in the chest, enough to displace enough lung to cause some shortness of breath. Now, how would you approach the operation? So I typically do most of these operations uh, in a laparoscopic fashion, much like most uh, surgeons across the country. I will do a very occasional transthoracic approach, particularly in those with a hostile abdomen or have had multiple intra-abdominal operations, but most commonly in a laparoscopic fashion. And can you describe the steps of the laparoscopic operation? I can. So I start every operation with an upper GI endoscopy. Um, no, no matter whether that patient has been scoped in the past or not, it's nice to confirm first that there's no other intra-abdominal esophageal or intra, sorry, um, there's no other esophageal pathology. Uh, and it's also nice to get a sense as to how much esophagus you have to work with, where the GE junction lies on endoscopy, how big the hernia is, is the mucosa viable, all those things are nice to know in advance of the operation. I do these patients obviously supine, arms out, I use five laparoscopic ports, um, and I think the, the key part of this operation is the initial step to the operation, which is when you look into the abdomen, assess the size of the, uh, of the hyal defect, how much stomach's above the diaphragm, and then without manipulating the stomach, reducing the sac out of the mediastinum and finding that nice plane between the mediastinum and the hernia sac, this sort of thin areolar plane which you begin to dissect in a circumferential fashion, freeing up the sac from the mediastinum and teasing it back out. So I try to manipulate the stomach as little as possible during these initial steps. The second part that's critical during this initial part is as you begin to mobilize the sac out of the mediastinum, you want to try to preserve the peritoneum overlying these, the cruse of the diaphragm. You want to sort of save that and not begin to shred the cruse as you, as you pull the sac out. And that's critical as you get to the point of the operation where you begin to close the cruse uh, to have that as sort of a, 
a buttress or a pledget you can think of as you bring the crews together with some stitches uh, at one point in the operation. Um, some of the older folks that you operate on, you can tease the sack out and it teases out quite easily. Some of the younger folks, this sack can be quite difficult to retract from the mediastinum. It takes a lot of work and these, you'd be surprised that as you work diligently side to side, inferior, anterior, posterior, you can begin to mobilize this out and small bites have bigger effects as you mobilize the sack out, but that has to happen and the sack has to be mobilized circumferentially and completely from the mediastinum. Once I've completely mobilized the sac, I'll continue to work up in the chest through the esophageal head to gain valuable intra-abdominal length. And that's just taking down the fibers that hold the esophagus as you mobilize into the mediastinum and, and just gaining length. So mobilizing as far into the chest as you can get without, in theory, injuring the vagus nerve. It's important to preserve those. Once I've done all that work, I'll sort of get an assessment of my intra-abdominal length, and at this point, I'll mobilize both the hernia sac and the fat pad off the GE junction to accurately see what I'm left with in terms of intra-abdominal length. I like to have at least two to three centimeters if I'm going to try to repair this without lengthening the esophagus. So I mobilize. Uh, <clears throat> the fat pad on the sac right along. Again, this typically will bring the anterior and posterior vagus nerves off the GE junction. I potentially can wrap inside that, or I'll wrap around them if I if I think that's too difficult. But I need to see the the, the GE junction to accurately gauge the length. Um, at that point, if I do have enough intra-abdominal length, uh, my preferred operation is a 360-degree Nissen fundification for these patients. People that I'm reluctant to do that in, it's only a, a small number of patients, are those with profound preoperative dysphagia. Um, and then those patients I often will do just a partial fundoplication to manage them. Uh, when I do a 360 degree wrap, I tend to do it over a 56 French Maloney dilator. The partial wraps I don't do with a dilator in place. Then the final part of the operation, whether it's the Nissen or otherwise, I'll close the esophageal hiatus. What happens if you don't have enough esophageal length intra-abdominally? Well, then I, I, I'm a firm believer in a, in a colus gastroplasty. I think that, the, that, the, that your wrap and the stomach has to, fit, has to sit tension-free in the abdomen. And so you're only going to achieve that with an esophageal length and especially with, with a shortened esophagus. So the technique that I used for, for a colus or intra-abdominal laparoscopic colus is, is a wedge gastroplasty where I put the 56 French bougie within the esophagus and then I take a stapling, a stapler, come down to the bougie and then along the bougie taking this wedge of stomach out. I, I try to minimize the length of the colus that I make because remember that becomes an aperistaltic segment of whatever you're creating of neoesophagus. And so I think the longer you make that, the more trouble you're going to run into. Make it as long as you need to get that two to three centimeters of intra-abdominal neoesophagus to work with. What happens if you violate the pleura and cause a pneumothorax? Nothing. And it's, it's not a big deal. And in fact, uh, sometimes we'll violate the pleura, particularly the left pleural space, to diminish the tension on the, on the esophageal hiatus as we begin our diaphragmatic closure. So sometimes it's just done intentionally to try to make a floppier diaphragm.
one thing I, I will say that's helpful at times is, particularly with an inexperienced anesthesia staff, is to have them put an arterial line in for particularly large hernias and elderly folks, because as you get into the pleural space with a little bit of pneumoperitoneum, you may create a tension situation where their blood pressure drifts a little bit, and it's nice to have that intraoperative monitoring. What happens if you have difficulties closing the crura or if it's attenuated? Yeah, so I, there's been a large uh, meta-analysis or um, published about a year or so ago where they saw there was no overall difference in complication. There may have been a slight uh, decrease in the number of recurrence or reoperations, but no overall big difference in complication. So my feeling is if it comes together nicely and you've done a good job preserving the peritoneum overlying the cruise, then, then I think you're in good shape and you should try to bring it that way. If, this, if bring it together that way without mesh. I think that if the 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 um, cura begins to look somewhat shredded or difficult to work with and bring it together, and then I will use an overlay of some sort of biologic mesh, typically uh, sewn in place afterwards. What would you do, especially for a patient who had Barrett's on her preoperative EGD? So Barrett's, to me, is a separate problem. So those patients are treated differently, uh, differently only in the sense that they would get serial uh, endoscopies as dictated by their Barrett surveillance protocol, but it wouldn't change what I did um, for the management of their parasophageal hernia because I'm trying to control their symptoms and prevent uh, a volvulus situation or their dysphagia or their anemia. But they certainly will need to be followed by their Barrett surveillance protocol. So it doesn't change my approach to these patients at all. And how would you follow this patient postoperatively? So I tend to see them back in a couple weeks. I get a barium swallow um, the day after the operation, typically. Uh, I put them on a pretty standard sort of two- to three-week diet that we use that I use for almost all my esophageal operations, from liquids to more solid food. Uh, and hopefully they'll advance quite slowly and gradually over time. I see them back and look at them symptomatically. I tend to study them periodically if they have symptoms. I don't get an annual barium swallow. And some travel a rather long distance to come have an operation and I'll return to the care of their primary care physician or their other GI, GI physicians as well. It would be nice to be able to follow these patients longitudinally with, a, with an annual uh, barium swallow uh, just for the academic interest of, of the natural history, but not always feasible in the large patient population that we see. Thank you. And we'll close with a case. This is a case of a 76-year-old man who has a history of a known parasophageal hernia. He presents with chest pain, nausea. He can't actually vomit, though. The physicians in the emergency room see him, and they can't pass an NG tube. On exam, he has fever, tachycardia. His labs show that he has an increased white count, and he appears quite ill. How would you manage this patient? Well, this is a very difficult case, and this is sort of the dreaded complication of the parasophageal hernia. Um, and it, he needs an operation almost immediately to assess what is going on. I'd bring him to the oper operating room, certainly get uh, you know a, a large amount of IV access for him, arterial monitoring, and I'd start with an endoscopy. And I've seen this go one of a couple different ways. I've looked down oh, at least once or twice where I saw a completely necrotic, non-viable stomach on, on endoscopy. In that patient, I approached through a, a left thoracotomy extending to a left thoracoabdominal approach to do a total gastrectomy 
and a subsequent interval reconstruction at a later date. Sometimes you'll look down and you'll see, <clears throat> geez, the stomach's not completely compromised, and you can reduce, try, attempt to reduce the stomach, maybe not do all the, the stuff, the work that we talked about earlier, which includes, you know, a collis or a nissen, but just get the stomach down, pecs it into place either with stitches or a percutaneous gastrostomy, uh, and see if you can preserve the stomach in that way. But he certainly uh, needs an emergent operation, of which can lead you down several different paths to reducing and or resecting the stomach in a, in a guy who's rather ill. Well, thank you, Dr. Morris. This was a great session. Thanks, Lucia.